Last week, we uh, looked at two things that were contrasted in the passage prior to this. We looked at the love of believers contrasted with the hatred of the world. Uh, Jesus has been preparing his disciples uh, for life without him. He has dropped this truth bomb upon them. I'm leaving you. And where I'm going, you can't come. You can't come now, but you'll follow me afterwards. And that is a hard thing for the disciples to swallow. It's caused great trouble. And so Jesus started in John chapter 14 with promising them, I'm going to come back and take you to be with me. He promises them the Holy Spirit. He begins to teach an analogy to help them understand how the Holy Spirit will function using the analogy of the vine and the branches. And Jesus is the vine and they need to stay attached as the branch and uh, the, the meaning the Holy Spirit would come and indwell them and empower them to bear fruit to bear fruit. And so then he commanded them once again to, to obedience, to, to love, and then he dropped the reality on them that the world's going to hate them. Jesus will be gone. The hatred that is directed towards Jesus will now be redirected toward his followers. And so he's preparing them that for that, the reality of living in obedience to Christ in the midst of a hostile world. And this is why he reemphasized that commandment in verse 17 of chapter uh, 15, Look at it again. These things I command you that you love one another. He's said this three times to them that they love one another because loving one another in the church is the most powerful testimony that you will have for um, in, in the midst of this, of this world, loving one another. And also, I might add, it's to be the source of love and unity and acceptance because we shouldn't go to the world expecting that from them. We shouldn't expect the world to love us and accept us. So we shouldn't feel that unity with them. We're supposed to get it in a church. How sad is it when you don't find that in churches? When there's more infighting and bickering in churches than there is in the world. It drives people to want to fellowship with the world instead of the church. It's the opposite of what we're commanded to do. And there's a warning against making friends with the world. We looked at it last week. It's James 4, 4. Adulterers and adulteresses do not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. No, instead, we're to expect persecution from the world. And that was in verse 20. We looked at this as well. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Now, we who live in the Western world really don't experience much in the way of uh, persecution uh, today. There are a few cases here and there, such as the high-profile cases of, of like the Ashers most recently. You know, they, they were going through true, real uh, persecution. But generally speaking, we're persecution-free. And while that might be a reflection of um, the blessing of living in a Christian uh, nation or in the midst of a generally tolerant culture, we shouldn't be surprised when our nation becomes less Christian or the world becomes less tolerant because that's what Jesus promised. Now, last week, we looked at several reasons for the world's hatred. We looked at the reason being that the ruler of this world, Satan, hates God, therefore he hates his friends. Remember, Jesus called us his friends. So Satan doesn't want to have anything to do with the friends of God because he hates God. Another reason was because you are not of the, of the world. Remember, Jesus said that he's taken you out of the world. The world loves its own, but you're taken out of the world. So it's going to hate you because you're not of uh, the world. Another reason was because they don't know God. All right, they're going to hate you because they don't uh, know God. And also because sin is just irrational. It doesn't make sense at the end of the day. It's just irrational. So the question is this. How can the world know those things about uh, God's people. For you to be hated, it's assumed then that you are a friend of God, right? It's assumed that you uh, do know God. It's assumed that you're not of this world. Those things should be evident for you to be hated, right? I'm just looking at it from the opposite way. And how does the world know that those things are in you? The answer is this, because of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. It's to manifest the presence of Christ, and it's to testify of him. That's the work of a Holy Spirit. And I've been warning you that we're coming up to this section, not warning you, but preparing you for it here in our passage today. Jesus finally comes, to, comes back to the, the Holy Spirit. Um, and in the face of, of the hatred and the persecution of this world, the believer might be tempted, you might be tempted to sort of stay silent, 
uh, might be tempted to sort of maybe go into exclusion somewhere, become a, a monk and live in a monastery, or, or maybe just to, to blend in. I, I think that's probably the, the predominant thing I see, particularly in the States. I, I, I'd rather just feel more comfortable and look more like the world. I'll still believe in Jesus, but I'll, I'll look like them, and that way I won't experience the persecution But Jesus encouraged his disciples with the promise of the Spirit's work in the world. You don't have to do it alone. The Spirit's going to work in you and through you. And so today we're going to look at four things that make up the primary work of the Holy Spirit. I think this is absolutely foundational, very, very important for us to understand. And so we're going to look at two of them that regard the Spirit's work in the world. And then we'll look at two that regard his work in believers. We're going to finish up chapter 15, starting in verse 26, and we'll go right on through verse 15 of chapter 16. So look at chapter 15, verse 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. These things I've spoken to you, that you should not be made to stumble." They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things I've told you that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. But now I go away to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, Sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. God, again, just thank you for this time in your word. I pray that your spirit would be with us, reveal truth to us, Lord, that we might be able to apply these truths to our our lives. This passage is so foundational, so important for the Christian life. Lord, help us to see it clearly. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I said, the Holy Spirit's primary ministry to the believer is to make them aware of of Jesus' abiding presence. That's the primary thing. He's leaving, but he hasn't left you orphans, right? So he's, he's here to let you know Jesus is still with you. That's, that's the primary ministry to the believer. But the Holy Spirit also has a primary role to this lost world. And that's what Jesus is focusing on here. And it is to testify about Jesus. So we're going to look at these two that um, have to do with his role to the world. The first is testifying of Jesus. And it's right here in verse 26. But when the helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. If the believer is living every day in light of the reality of Christ's presence with him, then the testimony of Christ is going to be evident. It's going to be the distinguishing trait of the church. That should be the thing that defines the church. The church is not meant to be caught up in all the social reform issues or uh, political activism. The, the main goal of the church is to testify of Jesus. Now, the Holy Spirit empowers and enables believers to testify about Christ. That's where the power comes from. In fact, you, you can't do it without the Spirit, right? You can't because we just read about that with the vine and the branches. And that's a vital truth and one that's vitally important for the disciples to understand because Jesus is going to leave them. He's going to send them out into the world to continue his mission. And he wanted them to understand that so much that he made them remain in Jerusalem until they received the Holy Spirit. Do you remember that? 
In Luke chapter 24, verse 49, he says, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. You got to stay there because you need my power. You need the Holy Spirit before you go and try to do the work. And that's the primary work of the Holy Spirit to the lost world. The world needs the gospel. They need Jesus, right? And so it needs that testimony that comes from the Holy Spirit through the life of the believer. Now, John writes in 1 John chapter 5, verse 6, he testifies of Jesus. He says, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is truth. Kind of a weird little verse, but it's really simple when you think about it. Jesus inaugurated his public ministry with his baptism, the water, right? And the Holy Spirit was there to testify of that. His public ministry ended, it was terminated at the cross, uh, the blood. And so the Holy Spirit bore witness of Jesus at his baptism, the water, and after the blood, after the cross, the Holy Spirit comes to us to bear witness of the cross, right? And of the resurrection, um, of those historical truths. And because the Holy Spirit's a witness to the truth and is himself truth, just as Jesus is, then that truth is in us and we can bear witness of that. So the Holy Spirit's here to testify of Jesus. The word is used to uh, testify as martyreo. It's where we get martyr from. So we're called to martyreo as well, right? The Holy Spirit comes to testify, but look at verse 27. You also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So the Holy Spirit does it. It's his job of testifying about Jesus, but it must be carried out by the followers of Christ. You can't sit in your living room, <laughs> right? And say, okay, Holy Spirit, uh, go on out there to my neighbor and testify of Jesus. Obviously, no one's going to think that. He testifies of Christ through you. Peter, after testifying to the Sanhedrin about Jesus, here's a great example, Acts 5.32. And we are his witnesses to these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Right? So he tells them everything about Jesus. He died, he rose again. This is, we're witnesses to these things, but so is the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's been given to those who obey him. That's us. He's there to testify of these things. And Paul wrote this to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 22. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. We preach Christ crucified. And he tells, right off the bat, he tells us that that is a foolish message, right? It's, it's foolishness if you're going to go to the Greeks. And if you go to the Jews, they're going to want, to want some miraculous sign to confirm that. It's a, it's a stumbling block uh, for them. It's a crazy message because you preach it anyway. <laughs> you, you preach Christ crucified. That is what we are to pre preach. And so to testify of Christ, to preach his truth, we've got to be able to live that and look at that. I remember we moved into a two-story house when our kids were quite young next to uh, some neighbors that had a very interesting daughter dressed up the kind of the gothic kind of thing that was going on that time. And so all these same kind of kids were coming to their house and they would sit outside and smoke. And, and you, don't, you just have a certain perspective, don't you? When you see that going on, I don't see that and go, oh, Christ followers, right? You just, I mean, it's not where you naturally go. But getting to know our, our neighbors, uh, they asked, you know, what we do. And so I was a pastor at a church down the street. And so that just came out. And, and without skipping a beat, she instantly began to defend the actions of her daughter. Never asked about her daughter, never mentioned anything, but clearly uh, must know I could clearly see some of those things taking place. So said, oh, 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 my daughter, you know, dresses that way and does those, those things because she finds it gets her an in, you see, into the, that crowd because, because most Christians wouldn't have that, 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 that you know, opportunity. So she's kind of, she gets in there. And I was thinking, oh, okay, well, you know, f fair enough if she's testifying about Christ. If the testimony of Christ is the overriding factor in all of that, I mean, I know Paul says, you know, I'll, I'll be whatever I need to be as long as I can get the gospel there. I doubt that was the case. I rather think uh, they were a little bit convicted about, oh, you're a pastor. Oh, let me explain uh, what you see going on with my daughter. Oh, she's a Christian. She's Christian, but she does these things because, you know, she's trying to fit into this, this group. That's what I see. I see a lot of that taking place. But it's about the testimony of Christ. 
You don't have to go and preach the gospel to everybody uh, in terms of words. We're also told to live it, right? And to look it. But the disciples are particularly qualified to testify about Jesus because they'd been with him from the beginning. That's why Jesus says that. You've been with me from the beginning, meaning they had heard everything he said and they saw everything he did. You know why many Christians don't testify about Jesus? They really don't know what he did and they really don't know what he said because they're not in the word. To testify about Christ, you have to know him. You have to know what he did. You have to have experienced it. You can know people, right? Well, you could see the testimony coming out when they're like, oh, let me tell you about my Savior, right? That's, that, is, that comes out. It was so important that they understood when they were going to replace Judas, because remember, Judas betrays Jesus, goes out, he feels guilty, hangs himself. So the disciples understood how important it was to replace Judas with someone who'd been there from the beginning, who could testify about what Jesus had said and done. So much so, this is what Peter says in Acts 1, 21 and 22. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. We want someone who's seen it all, who knows what Jesus has said. That's, that's the testimony we want. Now, we're not eyewitnesses as the disciples were. But we're called to point people to Christ through the revealed truth of God's word. Um, That is what we're called to do. And guess what that will bring? That will bring persecution. So that's why Jesus comes back to his warning regarding the persecution to come because he doesn't want them to be caught off guard by it. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 16. These things I've spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. He doesn't want them to stumble. The word stumble is scandalizo. It means to cause to distrust or to fall away or even to entice or bait someone to sin. It's interesting here the way he uses this. He doesn't want them to almost feel like Jesus has betrayed them, right? I'm giving you a mission. Go along. It's go ahead. You're going to have the power of the Holy. It's going to be easy, easy. No worries. You got the power of the Holy Spirit. No, he says it's going to be hard. The world's going to hate you. They're going to persecute you. It's going to be difficult. And so he doesn't want them to stumble. Now it's interesting. He warns them of the persecution that they might not stumble, but then he tells them on the way to Gethsemane that they would stumble, and that's what they're going to do. They're going to stumble. In Matthew 26 verse 31, Jesus said to them, "All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night." For it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. So he tells them, on the one hand, I don't want you to stumble. That's why I'm telling you these things in advance. And then the very next thing they're going to do, they're going to (laughs) stumble. They're going to stumble. But after the coming of the Holy Spirit, we no longer see a stumbling group of men. They face the hostility by boldly proclaiming Christ and the persecution follows them. Now he says, some of you will be put out of the synagogue now, remember, that was sort of the, uh, the thing that happened in John 9 with the blind man's parents. That was the threat there. We'll put you out of the synagogue. And it's more than just sort of being forbidden from the religious services. You're cut off from all uh, social, economic aspects of Jewish society. It's just terrible. You're ostracized completely. But that's the reality of the early church. They were all, that all happened to all of them. That's the reality. And in addition, many of them were killed. The Apostle John, who writes this, writes Revelation as well. In in Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, he writes this, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, so I've gone through some tribulations, I've had to be patient, right, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, he's not on a vacation island, right? He wasn't in, was it, Menorca? (laughs) Patmos was the Alcatraz, right? It was a penitentiary. It's a prison. He was sentenced there, and he was there, he says, for the testimony of Jesus, because he testified to the truth of Christ. And that's what happened to John because of his testimony, uh, only after he failed to die because um, someone tried to burn him in oil, uh, according to Christian tradition. In fact, according to Christian tradition, Peter, Andrew, James, the son of Alphaeus, were all crucified. James, the son of Zebedee, and the apostle Paul both lost their heads. Thomas was stabbed with spears. Mark was dragged through the streets of Alexandria. James, the half-brother of Jesus, Philip, they were both stoned. So was Stephen. Matthew, Simon the Zealot, Thaddeus, Timothy, they all died for their 
testimony. And some of their deaths were by men who thought they offered God a service. That's happening today. In the nations where, where Islam is supreme, Christians are being martyred because they think they're offering God service. It's in the name of Allah, right? They think they're doing God a favor. And that's what Jesus says here. Some of you will die by the hands of men who think they're doing something for God, but they're not because they don't know God. They don't know the true God. And that's exactly what Jesus says here in verse three. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. They don't do that because they know God. They do that because they don't know God. In fact, it's evidence that they don't know God. That's what Jesus says. That will happen to you, and it will identify them as those that don't know the true God. And Jesus has said this repeatedly. Back in chapter 15, verse 21, he said it. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. They don't know him. To not know God is willful, sinful ignorance, and man will give an account for that. Verse 4, but these things I've told you, that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them, and these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. Another reason for Jesus' warning about the coming persecution was to really to strengthen their faith, that when disciples were going through it, they could think back and they could remember that Jesus said that, and they would see his predictions coming true. In addition, Jesus didn't warn them about this earlier in his ministry because he was with them. He protected them. He was the primary target of the attacks when he was uh, around there. But now, now that he's going away, they need to know that the attacks won't just uh, sort of magically stop because the Holy Spirit has come. Holy Spirit's not a, uh, there to prevent persecution. He's not there to stop that from happening. In fact, persecution will probably more highly be directed toward them because of the Holy Spirit, because it will intensify the testimony of Christ. It's the opposite. Now, I'm sure this pep talk did not instill much joy for those disciples. Jesus is going to leave. Persecution is going to come. <laughs> they got to carry on the mission in spite of the hostility. And this Holy Spirit, this helper, is somehow going to uh, help them. Now, all the disciples could think about at this point, and I, would, I can't really blame them, was themselves, right? They're just thinking about themselves. And so Jesus is trying to, to redirect their thought and offer some comfort here with these next few verses. Look what he says. But now I go away to, to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. It's true that uh, two of the disciples did ask Jesus where he was going. Peter asked the question, Lord, where are you going? <laughs> and, and Thomas also said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we, we know the way? But their questions really didn't reflect a concern for Christ, did it? It was actually more concern for them. That's Jesus' point. They were thinking about themselves. They were thinking, well, how does this affect me? That's what Jesus said, or why he said what he did back in chapter 14, verse 28. I want you to look at it. You have heard me say to you, I'm going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said I'm going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. The perspective he wants them to have is to be excited, to rejoice. If you really love me, you'd be rejoicing that I get to go to the Father. My mission's complete. I get to be rejoined with him in glory, exalted to the right hand of the Father. That's where I'm going. You should be excited about that. Uh, they're not. <laughs> it's just too much for them to bear. Sorrow has filled their hearts, so he wants to comfort them. And so he gives them another aspect of the Spirit's work. Verse 7, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. It's to your advantage. It means, the word means profitable, expedient. It's, it's helpful. It's better if I go. Now, obviously, Jesus, without Jesus going away, um, which includes his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, we wouldn't have the gospel. So that's certainly profitable for us, right? It's profitable that Jesus went away because now we have the, the gospel. But uh, another reason that is to our advantage, advantage here, and what he's predominantly saying is because the Holy Spirit, the helper, is going to come to them. It's better that I go away. But here's what I want to ask. What, if Jesus doesn't go away, does that mean the, the Holy Spirit won't come? That's what he said. Like, I can't send him until I go away. Why does he have to wait till he goes away? 
Well, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to reveal the person and work of Christ. Is Christ's work complete yet? Not complete. He's got to go to the cross. He's got to be resurrected. He's got to ascend. When his work is complete, then the Holy Spirit can come because he can testify to the full ministry, the full work of Christ. That's one thing. The other thing is the Father gave the Spirit to the church to confirm that what the Son did, right, for us, that it actually completed the work of salvation. What, what guarantee would you have if we didn't have the Holy Spirit? Well, I really hoped all that worked out. <laughs> I hope I'm no longer under the wrath of God, but that's why we have the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 1, 21 to 22. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who has also sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. The guarantee of your salvation is the Holy Spirit. So you see how it's beneficial that I go. One, I can't send the Spirit unless I go because the Spirit's going to testify to the truth of all that has been done. And, and because He's in you, it's the guarantee that it worked. It's the guarantee that salvation is complete. Redemption is full. That's the idea. Now remember, Peter remembers all of this later on about Jesus um, and what he said about the Holy Spirit. And on the day of Pentecost, when he received the Holy Spirit, uh, this is what he says in Acts 2.32. Listen to this. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this, which you now see and hear. Remember, they were confused as to what they were hearing. They were speaking in the different languages. Now, what is going on? And some people thought, they're drunk. Um, no, look what Peter says. We're witnesses of everything I've told you. We're witnesses of, of Jesus Christ, that, that he rose from the dead. Um, and now he's been exalted to the right hand of the Father. He's remembered all these things. Yeah, Jesus said, I'm going somewhere. It's, you should rejoice. I get to go to the Father who's greater than I. That's where I get to go. And now we've received the promise. We've received this Holy Spirit. And that's what you guys are hearing. Like, Peter's excited. He, just, he doesn't care that persecution come from this. He's like, this is amazing. This has happened. So the Holy Spirit can only come if Jesus goes away. That's his point uh, here. But the Holy Spirit's going to help them, help them in their mission. And he has another ministry to the world. And here's the second one. So the first one is the ministry to the world the Holy Spirit has is to testify of Christ. The second one is to convict the world of sin. Look at verse 8. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Now, remember, Jesus promised that the, the Holy Spirit would testify about him through the world, and that's, that's an outward testimony, right? It's an outward thing, um, and we're responsible for that. The Holy Spirit's going to work through us to testify of Christ, and that's a testimony to the world. That's for the world, but we have the Holy Spirit's power for that, but there's an inward testimony that the Spirit does as well, and that part is fully on Him. We have no part in that. My point is this. The Holy Spirit convicts the heart. You do the testifying the Holy Spirit will empower you to do that. You leave the results to Him, which is, boy, is that, is that not encouraging, right? You, you don't have a certain quota to meet. <laughs> I was asked that once as a pastor. I really was. Are you just trying to get more people in the church? you have a quota? <laughs> like, thankfully, no. Holy Spirit does. You talk to Him, right? I don't have a quota. I'm just faithfully testifying to the, the truth of Christ. The Holy Spirit is the one that convicts the world of sin. That's His role. Now, what's meant by convict? Because certainly convict can have the meaning of sentencing, right? When a criminal is convicted of a crime. But in this context, the Holy Spirit convinces men of the reality of their sin and their need for salvation. It's a convincing work. He's convincing them that that's what they need. That's the, the Spirit's mission. And notice he convicts the world concerning three things. Concerning sin, he says, righteousness, and judgment. Look at verse 9. Of sin because they do not believe in me. Now, it's true that all have sinned, and men generally don't believe that. There's a general, right, disagreement there. We're basically good. We might do some wrong things here and there. We're not, you know, really, really bad like some of the people out there. We compare ourselves to other people. That's certainly part of it. But I want you to note what he says is the greatest sin here. Of sin because they do not believe in me. The greatest sin 
is that they don't believe in Jesus. That's been a theme all through John, hasn't it? All through John. Go way back to John 3.18. He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Ultimately, the sin of not believing in Jesus is, is the greater sin here. It's what the Holy Spirit has come to reveal to the world. And so when the Holy Spirit comes to reveal it through the testimony of his church and people choose not to believe, they're in their sin. In John 8, 24, Jesus says it again, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. You must come to faith in Christ. Is it not a wonder at this point in, in the Gospel of John that, that people still don't believe that you have to know Jesus to be saved? Is it, can you miss it? In the Gospel of John, you just can't miss it. It's all about belief in him. And the Holy Spirit's come to convince the world of what Jesus did. And if they don't believe, they're still in their sin. They'll die in their sins. That's the convincing work of Jesus. Now, this should take some pressure off of you because some people, like, I've talked to people, ah, I don't know how to, I don't have a witness. I'm, you know, I don't want to have to, the burden is on, on me is to provide all this proof and all this convince. Listen, listen, faithfully testify to the truth of what Jesus has done Okay? You can testify to what he's done in your life and then leave it to the Holy Spirit. You don't have to provide any more convincing work. Now, I know apologetics has its place and there's that room for you know, healthy debate and answering questions at deep. But if you feel like I'm not that person, listen, just testify the truth of Christ and what he's done in your life. Leave it to the Holy Spirit. You're not responsible for the outcome. Also, the Holy Spirit, verse 9, is to convict the world of righteousness. I'm sorry, verse 10, because I go to my father and you see me no more. What is he talking about here? Well, this is, this is the flip side of the point I just made. Not only does the spirit convict the world of their, of their sin and their need to believe in Christ is because they need righteousness. You, 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 if you're convicted of sin, then you must see that you're lacking something you need. You need righteousness and you need perfect righteousness that only comes through belief in Christ, right? Not works or, or some way I can earn my righteousness. It's the perfect righteousness that only can be found in Christ. They need to have their wickedness compared with his righteousness and then see the impossibility of salvation by any other means. That's what he's talking about. And Jesus, because he's gone to the Father, is proved to be the righteous one. In Matthew 5.20, Jesus said, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, for, for him to say about the, the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, listen, he, he was trying to, for, for, for that time period and for that crowd, that was the, you know, ultimate righteousness. People looked at the scribes and Pharisees, oh, they are the righteous ones. And he says, oh, no, your righteousness, it has to exceed that. You need a greater righteousness than that, and it's the righteousness of Christ. But for Jesus to go and be accepted in the presence of the Father, it's the ultimate example of his righteousness because God cannot look upon evil. He can't abide wickedness. He doesn't look on it. Habakkuk tells us that. And so that's why Paul writes in Philippians 2.9, Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. Jesus has been exalted, which tells you something, that his righteousness was perfect and that his righteousness, righteousness is the righteousness that you need. And that's, the again, the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. It's the flip side. You are a sinner in desperate need of righteousness but also to convict the world of judgment. The world does not want to believe that it's going to be judged or has been judged, certainly not. But of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged, he says in verse 11. The judgment of, of sin was carried out on the cross. It looked like a victory for Satan, all right? You, you read Peter and talks about, you know, uh, the scoffers that come and say, oh, why do you believe in the coming of Christ? Because as long as it's been, the world has never changed, right? I mean, everything's just been going on the same way forever. What's Peter right? Yeah, but you forget about the flood and the judgment of God upon the world. And why do we have that today where even Christians are starting to allegorize Genesis and get rid of the flood? What do you lose? You lose the judgment. That actually hampers the Holy Spirit's work. We actually are torpedoing the work of the Holy Spirit. The church is doing that. Unbelievable. The work of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world of judgment. God really did judge the world, 
with water. He's going to judge it with fire. And the judgment of the world was carried out on the cross, but salvation is, is offered through that. It's an amazing thing. Hebrews 2.14 tells us of Satan's defeat. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. So through death, Jesus destroyed the one who had the power of death, presumably, right? And that's Satan. And so there's only two responses to the Holy Spirit. The world has repentance or rejection. But that's up to the world. Believers can rejoice when a person repents of their, uh, they can rejoice of their, their faithfulness to the testimony of Christ, but it will have been due to the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus would have given them even more revelation in this, in this section. He, he talks about this, that it's too much for them to, to bear. And I think partly because they lack the Holy Spirit, they're still in the sorrow mode. But look at verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. I'd go on, but it's too much right now. You're not going to be able to get it all uh, right now. But it kind of leads into his next point because they don't have to because the Spirit will guide them into truth later on. And this takes us into the section where we see the Holy Spirit's work in believers or for believers particularly. Those two aspects we looked at, testifying and um, convicting, are the Holy Spirit's work to the lost world, the world that's going to hate you. The Holy Spirit's at work in that, but also the Holy Spirit's at work in the life of the believer. Look at verse 13. However, when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will tell you things to come. Another role of the Holy Spirit is to guide you into all truth. Jesus mentioned this back in chapter 14, verse 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Now, I think the Holy Spirit, since he's God, is the only one qualified to reveal divine truth. And the primary reference here is to the disciples who will be the writers of the New Testament. He's going to bring to their remembrance everything that Jesus has said so that they can um, write the Bible for us. We're told that prophecy never came by the will of man, but, but holy men by God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. But on a secondary sense, the Holy Spirit instructs and he teaches uh, believers through the Word of God, which is why it's so important that we're in the Word of God, so that he can guide us into that truth. John writes this in 1 John chapter 2, verse 20. He says, but you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. And then verse 27, but the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you do not need that anyone teach you, but as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. Holy Spirit is in you, abides in you, and is your teacher. I said that a few weeks back. You have a resident truth teacher in you, but you've got to be in the truth, Right? It doesn't come by osmosis. You've got to be in it. And it also teaches through things like we're doing now, right? You know, even as I was at this conference yesterday, I was, I was sitting there taking notes, listening to it, because, you know, the, the Holy Spirit's teaching all of us through his, his word, even if it's being shared up front by uh, somebody. The Holy Spirit teaches us. Because we're all at different places. He knows what we need. He knows what we lack. He knows where we need to go. And so he teaches us. And this is important. This teaching from the Spirit will always act in harmony with the Father, always. The teaching of the Holy Spirit will always act in harmony with the Father because he says, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he speaks. Now that's super important because you cannot tell me that the Holy Spirit told you to do something if it contradicts something I find in scripture, right? Because the Holy Spirit only does not act on his own authority. He only speaks what he hears through the Father, does that make sense? You tracking? So you, you, it has to always act in harmony with God's word, always. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, But as it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Verse 10, But God has revealed them to us through the Holy Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. 
This means the Spirit always leads in a way that's consistent with the Word of God. And it never leads in a way that would violate the principles of God's Word. And I think that's abused today in some circles. How does the Spirit lead us or uh, speak to us? Well, He does it through His inspired Word. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 says, Do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. This is a great passage. We're to be filled with the Spirit and we're to speak to one another, right? We're singing psalms um, and hymns and, and it's, there's a correlation to another passage. It's Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Very similar, right? Do you see here, you have filled with the Spirit, and here in Colossians, let the word of Christ dwell on you richly. The word of God is the sword of the Spirit. So you want to be led by the Spirit, you read the word of God. That's as simple as it gets. That's as simple as it gets. You need to be in the word of God if you hope to be led by his spirit. Now, one more note on this verse, the phrase, and he will tell you all things to come. I think that primarily refers to the the New Testament. Um, The Spirit's revealed everything that's to come to some, like the Apostle John. He's going to get a detailed vision of the end times, right? And he'll write the book of Revelation. So I think that's what's taking place there. Look at verse 14, because here's the second role to the believer. So firstly, he's going to guide you into truth. And secondly, this is what he does through believers. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. That's verse 14. And then verse 15, all things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. Now here is the ultimate purpose of the Holy Spirit. It's to glorify Jesus. What a shame that so many Christian groups today miss this by focusing more on the gifts and the blessings of the Holy Spirit rather than on the person and work of Jesus. Here's some commonly misbelieved things to be the role of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is never to glorify the Spirit. Hear me on that. The role of the Holy Spirit is never to glorify the Spirit. I saw an actress giving a an interview once, and it came up from the interviewer that she was a believer, which I was shocked to see just based off the movie that she was in and what she was doing in the movie. Let's just start there. But he says, so you're a, you're a Christian, and, and here's shamefully what the only thing she had to say. She goes, oh, yeah, the Holy Spirit, you've got to get in on some of that. That is amazing. As if the Holy Spirit was some sort of feel-good drug, and all she talked about was the Holy Spirit. Where was Christ? Because the whole role of the Holy Spirit is to what? testify of Christ, glorify him. And I would tell you today, and I don't mind saying this, then that wasn't the Holy Spirit. It was a spirit, but it's not the Holy Spirit. She was selling something different. The role of the Holy Spirit is never also to glorify you. It's never to glorify you. And you see that in churches today too, where in the name of the Holy Spirit, glory is being drawn to one's self in acts of worship or even in abuse of tongues and those kinds of things, um, we have a test given to us in 1 John. So the same author writes 1 John chapter 4. It was read to us by Leon this morning, and I'm just going to take you through that really briefly to show you that there is actually a test that you can run yourself to test whether the Spirit is of God. So let's look at what it says real quick. 1 John chapter 4. I'm just going to break this down real briefly, but I really encourage you to write them down or circle them down. There's three tests that are in these six verses here. Tests to test whether or not something's a spirit of God or not. Because sadly, um, gosh, even after we first arrived here, there was some sort of supposed big outpouring of the spirit back in the States in Florida. And I watched, I watched an interview on this guy, and I could tell you in the first five seconds of him opening his mouth that it was not of the spirit. Yet many prominent evangelicals said, well, uh, let's just wait and let's just see how this pans out. Let's see where this goes. Because the man was talking about the Holy Spirit telling him to go and kick someone in the face. The Holy Spirit told me to go kick that old lady in the face. And so I went, but he was tattooed and he was edgy and people liked it. Five seconds. Nope, 
not the spirit. Moving on. I, I, I had no time, you know. This is the kind of stuff that takes people today. But we're given a test here. 1 John chapter 4, let's read it. Verse 1, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Okay, by this, you know the spirit of God. Here's test number one. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. Test number one is they've got to confess a divine Christ. One, what's the role of the Holy Spirit? To testify of a divine Christ. So test one is, do they testify that? Now, people can outwardly kind of convince you of that. Oh, yeah, I believe in, I believe in, in, in Jesus. Absolutely. They got to confess, uh, confess that. Great, great. They've passed test one. So you get to go to pe- test two. Test two is down in verse four. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Ah, so here's test two. Do they possess a divine life? That's usually where it stops <laughs> for me right there. Do they possess a divine life? Because look, you are of God, little children. You're his children. You've overcome them. Why? Because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Who is in you? What did John just talk about? In fact, I think John writes this to flesh out a little bit more what Jesus just taught about the Holy Spirit. He remembers all these things Jesus taught. He says, okay, here's the second test about the Spirit. If you really want to know the Spirit's in you, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And you've overcome them because uh, you're greater. You have the greater thing. But if you're overcome by the world, meaning you're in the world, you're part of the world, you're in sin, then, then there's, you've been disqualified. There's a test of the Spirit. And that's how you can see usually fairly quickly in someone who professes to have the Spirit and being moved by the Spirit and get a big ministry of the Spirit. They've been disqualified because they don't possess a divine life. They're disqualified in their character. Their obedience to Christ is secondary because it's all about the Holy Spirit. They have to de- confess a divine Christ, possess a divine life. And then in verse um, 6, we are of God he who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Right? He concludes. So there you go. There's your three tests. So what's he say? We are of God, and he who knows God hears us, but he who is not of God doesn't hear us. Test three, they must profess a divine law. What is he saying? We are of God. John is of God. The apostles are of God. And he who knows God hears us. How do we hear John today? How do we hear the apostles today? We hear his word. We study his word. We believe his word. We practice his word. But he who is not of God does not hear us. Ultimately, it comes down to, do they actually believe in the authority of scripture and does their life line up with what is said in it? Those are the three tests. That's how you know someone has a spirit of God or they don't. Those are the three tests. And sadly, a lot of times I see people abusing the, the spirit. The spirit's given to the world, into the world to testify of him, to, to convict the world of sin. But in believers, it's to guide us into truth so that we will live lives that glorify him, not us. And don't glorify the Holy Spirit. That's the role of the spirit. The Holy Spirit brings glory to Jesus by teaching the truth about him. Jesus is the revelation of the Father, right? And all that belongs to the Father is also the sons. That's what he's saying here in these last verses, back in verse 15 of our passage. All things the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he will take of mine, declare it to you. The Holy Spirit brought glory to Jesus as he revealed to the apostles things pertaining to the person and work of Christ. And the Holy Spirit uses the glory of Christ revealed on the pages of Scripture to transform and mold us into his image. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. The transforming work of the Spirit in the life of the believer through being in his word brings glory to him. That's the true Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's work into the world. How do you hope to reach a world that hates you, that's offended by you, you just faithfully testify to the truth of who he is. I was, um, uh, many of you know, I was a, a, a grip, which is um, sort of behind the scenes in the movies and television industry. So you'd kind of do all the physical work 
and setting up lights and all those kinds of things. And, uh, you know, they're kind of like the construction worker type of crew. You can kind of just imagine the kind of guys I was working with a lot of the time. I was on one particular show um, that uh, they managed to pipe into their break room, the group grip uh, break room, um, some pornography. And they would sit in there, they'd watch it. And, and I just told them that, uh, well, I just didn't go in there. And so they kept trying to get me in there, and I had to tell them, I'm just not going to go in there, and ask me why. I said, well, it's, I'm, just, you know, I'm a Christian, and uh, that, wouldn't, that wouldn't glorify my, my Lord. I just said it that way. I just, it wouldn't glorify him. I didn't judge them. I didn't say, oh, you, you wicked. I mean, the wicked do what the wicked do. You don't, you don't judge them for it, right? Um, I said, I just can't, I can't do that. So it became a joke for them to try to, like, trick me into coming into the break room for a supposed meeting or something, and then they'd flip on the pornography or something. You know, try to make it a, a game. And every time I just go, oh, guys, you know, and I'd, I'd, I'd leave, I'd go out or whatever. And this was a hard show to go on. It was at a time we really needed to, I needed the work. Um, and uh, um, it, was, it was the kind of thing where I thought, oh, man, you know, just, is this going to make me lose the gig, you know? And they call you every day to call you back, you know? Okay, you can come on the crew tomorrow. So any day you could get, you could get cut. But the opposite thing happened, strangely enough. The opposite thing is that the main, the main grip guy, he, he actually started calling me in on extra things. He'd have me come in particular jobs that even other guys wouldn't get, and I'd work side by side with him. Um, and I thought, well, that's just a strange thing. And I would instead to be, I, I just thought the games would go on, right? The persecution would continue, like, you know, just you're ostracized. But instead, you know what? He, he, I think a little bit of respect came in there yeah. because I was willing to stand for the truth of something I believed in, but I didn't do it in a way that it offended him in terms of like, well, you know, you're just a wicked sinner and, you know, hope you rot in hell kind of a thing. I mean, no, that doesn't go anywhere. You know, okay, then, I, then I would be in the unemployment line, right, next day. But I said, oh, I just can't do that. It would offend my Savior. And I just, you know, I'm going to go over here. I've messed up many times, you know, but I'm just giving you an example of one, you know, time where I felt like, okay, the Lord used that in a good way. Um, we're, we're to stand separate from the world. We're just not to compromise. And I just want you to remember that the Holy Spirit's primary work in your life is to make you like Jesus that you would glorify him and people would look at you and they see Jesus. That wouldn't look at you and see some kind of weird, weird thing as you, you know, talk about the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit's real. Gifts are real. Those things are there. But Jesus doesn't mention any of those things. He just says, the Holy Spirit's going to come. He's going to do the testifying. I want you to go win this world for me. And the way you're going to win this world for me is going to be like me. And I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit to do it. So that's my encouragement to you. Be like Jesus. Holy Spirit's going to do that work through you. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word today, for the encouragement, Lord, really, that you give us, that it's to our, advan- your, our advantage that you, you went away. Otherwise, we'd be going at it alone. You're going away so that we have the Holy Spirit, power within us to testify of the truth of who you are. Really, Lord, I think that happens just as you grow us and mold us in more and more into your image. As we grow more and more in love with you, the world can see more and more of Christ in us. And I just pray as your church, Lord, we would be this kind of people that would be hungry for your word because we know what it does, that it transforms our lives, and that it would be a testimony to this lost world. And Lord, even when it does bring difficulty, when it does bring uh, persecution on some level, Lord, that we'd be bold to, to stand for what you've called us to stand for because we love you, not because we hate the world. It's the other way around. The world's promised to hate us, but it's not a guarantee that everyone will. Or sometimes, as your word says, uh, people will hear your word, and so hear us. And so, Lord, I just pray that we'd be faithful to live lives that glorify you, and that you would just redeem many, many lost in this world and in Great Britain for your kingdom. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.